It's a great honor for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speakers podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders, alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honor and a distinct privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics. And when they stand at that podium, they speak not only to the entire country, but they can speak to the entire world. Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 118th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Kelly Jackson, and I am the president of the board of directors of the Empire Club of Canada, and also an associate vice president at Humber College. I am your host for today's event. It's a virtual event, and it's all about tales from the campaign trail, majority or bust. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement that I'm hosting this event within the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wyandotte peoples. In acknowledging traditional territories, I do so from a place of understanding the privilege that my ancestors and I have had since they first arrived in this country in the 1830s. I wanna recognize that last week across the country, many dedicated time to learning about the experiences of Indigenous children who were forced to attend residential schools. Many of those individual stories are untold, buried with them in the ground. And many survivors over the years who tried to tell their stories were not believed. I hope that we continue to find ways beyond the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation to honor these survivors and to hear their stories. And as we work to connect past actions to present realities, listening and learning from each other is so important. So we encourage everybody tuning in today to learn about the traditional territories on which you work and live. I now wanna take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible and complimentary for our supporters to attend. Thank you to our lead event sponsors, Ernst Cliff and Omers, and to our supporting sponsor, the Canadian Securities Exchange. And thank you also to our season sponsors, the Canadian Bankers Association, LIUNA, and Waste Connections of Canada. Now I'd like to remind everybody participating today that this is an interactive event. And so those attending live are encouraged to engage with our speakers by taking advantage of the question box. You can scroll down and find that just below your on-screen video player. We'll try to incorporate as many questions as we can throughout the discussion. And if you require technical assistance, please start a conversation with our team using the chat button, which you will find on the right-hand side of our screen. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media, 
I will be uh, posting some different hashtags during the conversation so you can use those uh, <laughs> on those platforms that are working today uh, to engage in a conversation. And to those watching on demand um, or tuning in at a later date, welcome. I'd now like to officially call this virtual meeting to order. I am delighted to welcome and introduce the panel for today's event. David Coletto is CEO and founding partner at Abacus Data and will be kicking off today's events with a brief polling presentation to set the scene for the panel discussion that will follow. Marika Walsh is a political reporter for the Globe and Mail and will be our moderator today. Jennifer Howard is chief of staff to Jagmeet Singh, leader of the New Democratic Party. Dan Mader is partner of Loyalist Public Affairs and Braden Cayley is Senior Director of Communications for the Liberal Party of Canada. You can read the full bios of the panelists by scrolling down your screen. Our panelists today are gonna share an inside scoop on what went on in the war rooms, on the buses, on the ground, all across this campaign that we just wrapped up as a country. They are gonna let us know how the three, three of the major parties functioned, what they got up to, <laughs> all of the good stories that we've been waiting to hear in the run-up to Canada's 44th federal election. To get it started, over to David to share those polling results and kick us off. David? Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for that introduction. A real pleasure to be here. Um, we were just talking before the show started more than two weeks or just about two weeks since the election. It feels like a long time. This election was a short one, but also felt long. Uh, I'm sure more so for, for our insiders that uh, will share their experiences on the campaign. Now, I've been asked to come and, and share some polling data um, based on our final survey of the campaign that we did over the final weekend, as well as a post-election survey that we wrapped up uh, in the days following uh, the election. And I, I've been asked to kind of give a sense of what I think happened. And it's not easy and nor is it, I think, obvious that this election uh, was, was about one thing. And my thesis today is that it was about multiple things um, and, and trying to unpack the different forces and, 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 and feelings and attitudes and impressions that voters had of their choices in the lead up to the campaign and then throughout this campaign is really my goal today. Now we know the outcome. I'm not going to dwell on on you know the outcome being very similar uh, to the results in 2019. But obviously, um, you know that's a big part of how I think the public is reacting to the election call itself and whether they felt that it it ultimately changed much in terms of the composition of parliament or perhaps the direction of the country. But it is worth noting that while on the surface it might look like this election was you know a, a repeat of 2019 in terms of the outcome i think there was a lot of important differences um, that were going through people's minds and some of the divisions or cleavages that you know we had seen uh in in this country over the last uh decade or so i think continued to form that will tell us a lot about how this new parliament's going to work and you know what what comes next in terms of uh, our political system now when you ask canadians how do you feel about the election results? You can see here that, you know, not a lot of folks out there are delighted or happy with the outcome. Uh, I think that's a reflection of their feeling about maybe the choices that were on offer or the fact that they were asked to participate in this election uh, overall. 
but you can see that, you know, if you, if you add up delighted and happy and accepting, that's a clear majority of people who kind of give a, a okay, you know, I'm fine with this. This is, you know, not, not something that um, is, is overly upsetting. And that I think is a reflection of the fact that when we ask people what outcome they wanted, uh, you actually typically got more people saying, I'd like some kind of minority at the end of this than, than either of the two main parties winning a majority, which I think is a reflection of generally the satisfaction uh, that most people had with the, the output that the previous parliament uh, had produced. Now, in terms of the takeaways, I think there's four in my mind that, that I, I want to focus your attention on. Um, unlike some of my colleagues in the polling industry, um, many of the online polls like ours didn't show a lot of movement from day to day. I, I for one, am, am, am always um, skeptical about, you know, the daily tracking polls that shows like five or six point swings over two days. That means millions of people are like waking up one day and saying, I'm a liberal today and then tomorrow I'm a conservative. I don't think that typically happens. But what we see during a campaign, especially with telephone surveys, is, is I think difference uh, in, in, in motivation and engagement that causes some uh, folks to be more likely to answer a survey or not. So we saw very little movement um, after that first week of the campaign. I also think that this, as all elections are about a choice between, you know, uh, the desire for change, wanting to see a change in government and keeping the status quo. And that's a, a, a particularly important question um, in the midst of a pandemic. And that choice that voters were asked, you know, to make between replacing a government that most felt had done a reasonably good job managing the pandemic with uh, a choice or multiple choices that they weren't completely sure would do a, either a better job in the short term when it comes to the pandemic or a long-term um, outcome. I think what I'm going to show in, this, in our polling was that increased public anxiety or pandemic anxiety over the course of the campaign, I feel is it was a double-edged sword for the Liberals. And I'll talk about that. And then lastly, you know, with a, what I believe was a more disengaged electorate, did this campaign matter at all? And I don't want to take all away the thunder from my campaign warriors uh, on the panel today, but you know, if, if, if no one's paying attention and there's a campaign, did that campaign even happen? That's a question I, I throw out there. So let's look at quickly at the, the trend line in our vote and pension numbers. And you can see once the election was called, uh, the Liberal number dropped fairly quickly by four points. And then over the first two weeks of the campaign, the Conservatives caught up. And then from that point on, we saw almost no movement in our weekly tracking uh, between the Liberals, the Conservatives, and the New Democrats, right? They all stayed more or less within one or two points of where they were. Now, you saw that purple line start to rise, not as high or as fast as some of the online, uh, telephone surveys were showing in terms of the People's Party. But for the most part, this was a fairly flat kind of momentum. Even when we did daily tracking in the final week, we didn't see a whole lot of, of movement happening. Um, perhaps at the end, a little drop for the New Democrats, but for the most part, pretty stable numbers. Now that national number obviously overshadows some of the regional and, and, and demographic differences. And I'm just gonna highlight a few for you. One of the things I think happened in this campaign, and we saw it just in the seat outcomes with the Liberals you know, holding their vote or, or gaining vote in the case of the lower mainland, um, you know, was really very much an urban and suburban base, and the Conservatives reinforced and strengthened their hold on, on rural Canada. This is the national divide by urban, suburban, and, and rural respondents. If you look at Ontario in, in particular, you see a really big divide. And so the Conservatives were able to close the popular vote uh, gap in Ontario, but it didn't 
really matter in terms of seats because they didn't do it where the seats were. And that was in and around Toronto, um, Ottawa, and, and the larger cities. And so what we saw at the end of this campaign is actually, a, I think, a, a bigger divide, where in places like Saskatchewan, uh, the interior of BC, Alberta, uh, rural Manitoba, no offense, Braden, you'll come up later, the Liberal Party really doesn't exist all that much. But in large parts of urban Canada, the Conservatives uh, are quite weak. Think of the fact they have no seats in Montreal, Toronto, uh, or, or the formal city of Vancouver. Um, and then for the New Democrats, um, you know, one of the, the few parties that can actually bridge that urban-rural divide, where they have seats in, in urban and, and rural settings. I'm always interested in the demographic divide, particularly generational. Interestingly, in this election, our, our data suggests there wasn't really sharp differences in vote by age. You can see the Liberal vote was fairly consistent across the three age groups. Um, the, the Democrats did slightly better among younger voters. They had a lot more potential among that group. This is those who actually turned out and voted or uh, said they definitely were going to be voting in, in the election in the final weekend. And the Conservative vote, you know, again, was fairly consistent, so not sharp um, demographic divides in terms of age. Uh, we did see a gender gap, but um, not as sharp as it had been in the past. But what we did see, and I think this is tied to the urban-rural divide, is among racialized Canadians in our sample, the Liberals won by almost 20 points. Among Caucasian or white Canadians, you could see the, the Conservatives won by five. So that, I think, was, was really a, a feature of, of the urban-rural divide. So what was the campaign about then? And what can polling data tell us about the different forces at work? Well, the first question always, I think, is especially with a government that's been in power for six years and is asking for another mandate, was this a change election? And we have the benefit of having uh, previous data. So when you look at those bottom two bars on this slide, you can see when the campaign started, 43% of uh, eligible voters said they definitely wanted a change in government. Over the course of the campaign, that increased to 50%. But when you look at that bar at the top, it was still either slightly below or about where we were in 2019. So in some ways, this campaign was about changing the government for those mostly who didn't vote for the Liberals last time. The problem for the opposition parties was that number didn't get to a point that really put the Liberals in jeopardy, where you had large numbers of people. Think of the provincial election in Ontario in 2018, where you had close to 70, 80% of people saying they definitely wanted a change in government, getting rid of Kathleen Wynne. We never, we never really saw that. Um, and I think part of that, in my mind, was because, um, while I think, and we'll get to this in a moment, the opposition parties, uh, particularly the Liber uh, Conservatives and New Democrats, did a really good job at litigating the, the, the so-called unwanted or unnecessary election. Uh, but what they didn't do was at the same time make a, a, a compelling case for change at a time when maybe the country wasn't ready for change because we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, the data suggests um, they didn't quite get there. And that, I think, helps explain why the Liberals were able to hold on to much of their vote from 2019 and hold on to those, those core seats that they had. Speaking about an unnecessary election, was this campaign about it? I think all, of, all pundits started the campaign saying, yeah, in three days, we're going to forget about the fact that the prime minister called this election uh, when he didn't really have to. When we asked people what impact did calling this election have on their likelihood to vote liberal, the first thing to note is more than half said it had at least some effect in their minds. You know, 21% uh, said, I will not vote liberal because of this. Another 17% said they're much less likely to vote liberal, 15 somewhat. Um, that's, that's an important uh, data point because 
many of the, the folks, particularly in those, those sort of middle categories, many of them actually voted Liberal in 2019. And so they started this campaign, um, I think, with, with a, a perspective to say, they were annoyed, frankly. People were, were kind of annoyed that this election was called. Ultimately, I think it, it probably cost the Liberals, in my mind, their majority, uh, but it wasn't enough to prevent them from winning the most seats in the places that they needed. And so in part, this election was about the fact we were having an election. I don't think you can, you can move past that and, 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 and say it, it wasn't the case. Was it only about it? I don't think so. And then that's this dynamic between change and this election. Was it about issues? Well, you know, the skeptics will say elections are never really about issues, but I do think there were, there were a number at play and because no one issue emerged as the top issue for a clear majority of voters, um, no party really benefited from it, right? So when we asked voters in our post-election survey, what was or what is the top issue facing the country? And we asked them to pick their top three. You can see almost half said the pandemic was uh, the most important issue. But in the, just think about it, we're in the midst of the fourth wave, we're still in a global pandemic, and more than half of the country did not choose the pandemic. So it wasn't the most important issue for everybody. It was important to many, but not everybody. The cost of living certainly was high up on the list. We had continued to at least seen it throughout the campaign beyond the pandemic as, as a top issue. Healthcare, the economy, uh, the environment and climate change and government deficit gets you to about a quarter of people putting it in their top three. By the way, those were the same issues if you take out the pandemic that were in the top four or five uh, in 2019. And many of them were in the top four or five in 2015 and 2011. Um, and so we've had these same issues um, in, 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 in at the top, but the pandemic was certainly different. Now, when we look at how folks voted or said they were going to vote, um, in this case, it was how they voted because it's our post-election survey, depending on which issue they um, selected first, here's among those who said the pandemic was a top three issue, almost 40% voted liberal, 31 conservative and 19 uh, new Democrat, right? So if this election was only about the pandemic, my mind says the liberals would have won and they would have won a majority government and the other two parties would have been really actually close uh, to the 2015 election results. If the election was about the cost of living, among those who picked this issue, you could see the conservatives had more or less a slight advantage over the liberals, but not a big one. And so that the issue that they, I think all three parties really fought this campaign on in terms of their platforms, how do you make life more affordable for folks? Um, all three came close to the vote share that they got nationally among this group. What about the economy? Well, here you've got the uh, conservatives well ahead, 47%, almost half of those who said the economy was a top issue uh, ended up voting conservative, 30 voted liberal and eight for the new Democrats. You can see the the challenge New Democrats have on that issue, but the effectiveness that the Conservatives had in framing for, for a sizable group of the electorate, uh, this as a, as a potential ballot question. What about healthcare? Despite the Liberals' attempts to try to use it as a wedge, I don't think it really emerged as one uh, as clearly as they had hoped because um, it was basically tied among those who said healthcare was a top issue. And finally, on climate change, oh no, not finally, second last climate change, you can see here, if this election was about climate change, uh, the Conservatives would, would have struggled um, and the Liberals would have done very well. Interesting timbit. Um, we ask a slightly different question uh, in our surveys. We ask, which party do you think is best on these issues? 
the, the Liberals also won by almost 15 points on that question. Two years ago, when we asked that question, the Green Party won outright. This time, they were at 5%. It shows not only the decline the Green Party had in this campaign, but also the effectiveness, and Braden, give you some credit here, that the Liberals have had over the last two years at making the public believe that they're the party that cares the most and are probably best able to deal with that issue. Uh, and so climate change was not the most important issue, but was important to many voters. Finally, if this election was about dealing with the debt or deficit, you can see the advantage that the Conservatives had. This is a core Conservative issue. Almost, all, almost half of them ended up voting Conservative, or more than half of them uh, among those who cared about it. So if we look at the issue set by you know, who owns those issues, the, the Liberals did have an advantage, although not a huge advantage on the pandemic. They also had a clear advantage on the environment and climate change. The Conservatives had a natural, as they typically do, advantage on the economy and the government debt and deficit. And then there was a pretty competitive race between cost of living and, and healthcare. And so if you think about, was this a change election? Was this about calling the election early? What issues mattered? You can start to see why we get to such a close race, why no one was able to break away because no one really won the question of, of, of what, of, of, of climbing and, and issue salience over the campaign. Last point um, is, was this about the pandemic? Now, we've been tracking public anxiety or attitudes about the pandemic since March 2020. This is our trend line uh, to March 2021. And so the red line are those who say they're getting more worried over time. Uh, the green line are those who say over the past few days they've gotten less worried. And you can see you've got the third wave uh, sort of emerging out of the spring, um, and then it drops down over the course of most of the summer. A week, a month before the election was called, we actually saw probably the most positive kind of public attitude towards the pandemic that we had seen since it was since it first happened, right? Everyone was getting vaccinated. Everyone felt this was going to be a great summer. Um, the worries about the fourth wave hadn't yet taken hold. We were seeing glimpses of it in the UK and elsewhere, but it really wasn't uh, uh, on our radar. And then a month later, you see almost doubling of those who say they're getting more worried. And then into the campaign, it basically holds, right? And so it didn't get significantly worse in those final days, given what was happening in Alberta and Saskatchewan. But there was a large number of voters out there who were feeling anxious about it. And I mentioned the Liberals had an advantage. When we ask a slightly different question, and we asked this throughout the campaign, and this is the final weekend, we said, if this pandemic gets worse, which party would you prefer to be in charge of managing things going forward? And you could see, despite the fact that in our final poll, the Conservatives were ahead by one over the Liberals in the ballot, the Liberals had a six-point advantage uh, on this question. Now, that would signal obviously advantage. The problem for the Liberals was, in terms of, and I hate talking about political advantage around a pandemic, but mind, excuse the, the sort of insensitivity of, of what I'm about to say, but not enough people who cared about this pandemic ended up voting Liberal. Um, almost one out of four of that 35% ended up voting for a different party. And so, in, 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 and so that signals to me that this, the pandemic was clearly in the public's focus but it wasn't sharp enough at the end of the campaign to give the Liberals those few, you know, I, I saw an analysis today, they needed 17,000 total votes in, in a handful of writings to win a majority. But more than that, they needed a few points across the board and they just didn't get there in order to win that majority going forward. Perhaps a few more weeks of this campaign 
it may have happened, but um, the signal was that it wasn't. So to wrap up then, you know, I think, first of all, if we look ahead, um, perhaps the precedent for calling or forcing an early ele election has now been set. Um, you know, I don't know if in two or three years from now, whoever pulls the plug or whatever vote might happen in Parliament, whether the public will react as negatively as they did uh, during this campaign. But it is clear that we can't assume that voters are just simply going to forget that, th that an election is called and we're going to move on to other things, especially if the opposition parties effectively keep it on the agenda, as both Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh uh, did throughout this campaign. I believe that although the election results look similar, it has created some sharper divides. Yes, the Liberals have a few seats in Alberta, um, but the, the urban-rural divide, a government that is primarily urban, um, up against an opposition that is primarily small town, small city, and rural, um, may make for a fairly fractious parliament going forward. And so this election didn't necessarily solve for that problem. In fact, it may have made it worse. Now, obviously, the Liberals have an, an ambitious agenda. Um, and perhaps the next few months, if this is Mr. Trudeau's final, final kick at the can, it may be all about legacy. Um, and so agenda setting and prioritizing will be important. But obviously, the public is still, and we're just finishing a survey now that continues to show this, ending the pandemic and getting us on recovery remains their, their top priority. Um, and so whether or not Parliament can kind of find common ground on that remains to be seen, but that's where the public's heads are at. So was this election, um, you know, uh, what happened clearly? I think you saw a confluence of multiple forces. You had tension inside some voters' minds between not wanting to punish, sorry, wanting to punish Mr. Trudeau for calling an election they didn't necessarily think he should have, but then not necessarily being sure that Mr. O'Toole or Mr. Singh uh, were effective uh, alternatives. And, and that often is the case. You can, you can want change, but you still have to have an alternative. And that desire for change never hit a point that I think pushed the Liberals uh, truly out of, of a place where they could, they could get reelected. And so uh, a fascinating campaign, despite the fact that those national numbers didn't really move. Um, a lot was going on, I think, in people's heads, and um, it was uh, it was one to certainly watch from the sidelines <laughs> through the polls. And I look forward to the the conversation now with uh, Marika and this great panel. So, Marika, I will hand things over to you. Thanks so much, David. And I'm really excited to have this panel. They are people who are really core to every campaign, which means they have also uh, not slept for five weeks, probably longer beforehand, and really gave up a lot to contribute to this election. And while they unmute their microphones, I'll just introduce them again for you. So we have Jennifer Howard, who was the campaign director for the NDP. We have Dan Mater, who was the deputy campaign manager responsible for policy. And then we have Braden Kaylee with the Liberals, who was the director of advertising and the deputy chief digital strategist. So really uh, stellar crew that we have joining us today to bring us behind the scenes of these campaigns. And Braden, I want to start with you and the Liberals, but I'll go around to everybody on this. And it's really just to you know, that question that nobody really loves, but we all like to hear the answer on is, is the self-assessment of, of what grade you would give your campaign and why? Well, I, I would grade uh, the campaign as maybe a B plus to A. Uh, there were obviously 
you know, uh, not a majority as the result in the outcome, but an absolutely tuned, balanced effort uh, from, you know, the ground up of people working for weeks and months to knock on doors, make phone calls uh, for smart digital uh, campaigning to be brought to bear a field program. Uh, and really, I think the best plan on several issues that in David's excellent presentation uh, were key priorities for people on affordable housing, on pandemic response, on childcare, on climate change, the best plan, proven leadership and a strong team, I think were, were emphasized by us pretty strongly throughout. Um, of course, a majority government uh, is, you know, in the title of this panel, uh, majority or <laughs> bust, but I've been around long enough in the party to remember a 2011 election campaign and many before it uh, that were a very different result. And now Justin Trudeau has uh, won the most uh, seats here in three consecutive elections. And that means he can get right back to work on the priorities that we talked about in the campaign. So mission accomplished in that sense of having a mandate to keep working on moving Canada forward. Okay, thank you. I'll go to you now, Dan, with the Conservative campaign. Look, obviously we didn't win. Um, and so there, there is room to improve and we're working on doing that. On the other hand, we went from 12 points back to one point ahead by the end. We uh, took an unknown leader after a year of people not wanting to see politics and only paying attention to the government, introduced him to Canadians, began earning the trust of Canadians. Um, so, you know, definitely learned a few things and room to improve but uh you know won the argument in the economy won the argument about cost of living couldn't quite convince canadians to uh change horses in the in the, in the middle of the pandemic uh particularly as it got worse towards the end um but began the process i think of uh of, of earning that trust so uh pretty pretty still pretty happy with with what the team did and and very happy with what the leader accomplished Okay, and Jennifer, how about from your perspective in the NDP? Yeah, uh, we feel really good about the campaign that we ran. Uh, we had a plan for our campaign. We stuck to that plan. Jagmeet was very focused. Um, we, you know, we started with the many respects the most popular, well-liked and trusted leader, and we ended the campaign with people feeling even better about him. Um, so those are all positives. We would have liked to have won more seats for sure, our vote went up, um, you know, uh, and, and I think that's only true for for us among the major political parties. Uh, and now we have to focus on turning those increased votes into more seats, and that'll be a focus for the coming time. But we had great candidates. We had a good plan. We stuck to that plan. It was a short campaign period, which is always a challenge, I think, especially for opposition parties. And it was, you know, half of it was during the summer. Um, but yeah, I think we, you know, we accomplished what we wanted to in the campaign. The results were not quite what we wanted. And sometimes you do everything you know how to do and you don't quite get to where you want to go. So we have, we have some work to do for next time. Okay, so I think you've all given me the glass half full approach or <laughs> perspective on your campaign. So I appreciate that. I want to dig in a bit more first on the end result and then we'll kind of go back through some of the machinations of the campaign because you guys have sort of touched on this now. Um, Brayden, what strikes me, and, and David Hurley actually posted this as well, he's a former Liberal uh, campaign manager as well, is just how much the Liberals were able to make every vote count in, in truly a remarkable way. In 2006, the Liberals won 30.2% of the vote and 103 seats. In 2021, the Liberals won 32.6% of the vote, so just shy of two points more. 
and uh, government and 159 seats. So can you explain how that happened? What has changed in the liberal machine that makes your vote count so much more in each of these ridings? Well, uh, it's people, people, people. It's a, a party that has made some really important decisions with Justin Trudeau's leadership, uh, frankly, to open up the party, make it completely free for people to join, uh, and then to put up their hand to volunteer long before a campaign begins. Um, and so, uh, you know, a, a huge volunteer army, really, that, you know, had done, you know, well over two dozen national days of action before the writ ever dropped in this uh, cycle, knocked on or made calls to 18 million uh, different people in the lead up to Election Day. And then, yeah, you're right, like a, a very focused campaign effort that is, you know, really devoted to, uh, you know, following the data, listening to the insights that you're hearing from campaigns and what volunteers are getting on the doorstep, and then focusing that carefully into the ridings that are close uh, and knowing when those ridings are close so that you can devote volunteerism or advertising into making a difference there right up to the wire on election day. Um, you know, and one of my best examples, I think, of that is actually from 2019, but I think illustrates that, you know, Hochelaga was won by just a couple hundred votes uh, in 2019. Uh, the seat was flipped. And that was uh, after the biggest single team of volunteerism on Election Day anywhere in the country. So people were able to focus volunteers there, focus the campaign and turn a seat. And there was a lot of that in, in 2021 that made a key difference to this close outcome, uh, but a very strong seat outcome for the Liberal Party. And Dan, I think that's what, you know, some of the reporting maybe during the campaign misses that when we're talking about the national popular vote numbers, it doesn't always translate as we see for the second time, how that filters down to seats. And so I'm wondering from the conservative perspective, does the party see it as a problem of a, the get out the vote machine? Does it see it as a problem of where their votes are in the urban versus rural divide? Or how does it view this really conundrum for you guys of having the most votes, but not the most seats? Yeah, look, it's, it, that is definitely one of the challenges that our party has faced over the last five, six years, is that we win by huge margins in rural areas. We win by huge margins in, uh, in places in the West, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, and then might lose a bunch of seats by smaller margins in places like the GTA or lower mainland uh, of BC. And so one of the, the things we're working on this campaign was that, and it was basically it's about earning trust of voters, earning trust of voters in areas like the GTA, Vancouver, Atlantic Canada, where we were totally shut out in 20, uh, 2019, had been working to kind of get back uh, into competition there. And that's one thing where we were pleased that we're able to do in this campaign. It's uh, it's gonna looks like it's gonna take us a couple campaigns to fully earn earn that trust. But we made gains in those areas. We made big gains in several provinces in Atlantic Canada. We're not shut out of Newfoundland anymore. Uh, made big gains in Nova Scotia and, and, and New Brunswick in terms of, of increasing our vote share there. Gained votes in Ontario. Um, and and I think that our approach, you know, our approach worked in terms of that. Not quite enough. Uh, you know, another point or so, particularly if the NDP <laughs> uh, did a point or two better also, and a whole lot of seats start flipping in our direction. So there's more work to be done. But, uh, you know, we saw that definitely as an issue, the concentration of our votes in, in, in rural and western areas uh, and something we've been working to address and started to address in this election. And Jennifer, do you see it as a, a get out the vote challenge for the New Democrats that 
you know, especially in downtown Toronto, for example, there were some very tight races that just didn't quite fall your way. So, so what was that sort of tipping point that gave it to the Liberals compared to the NDP? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And we're going to spend some time, you know, really delving into the data to make sure we have the right answers or fixing, or fixing the right things. But I do think turnout was a challenge for us. We knew it was going to be from the beginning. Uh, we knew it was going to be in a pandemic election. Um, you know, typically our voters uh, sometimes have a harder time getting out to the polls for lots of reasons. And I think that may have been true this time. You know, when you're spending the day and all you hear on the news is the lineup is three hours long and you need to take transit or have someone look after your kids or, you know, whatever, that can turn away voters. I think there's a piece of work for all of us to do between now and the next election to work uh, with Elections Canada on how we make increasing turnout um, part of their mandate and and how we make voting more accessible. So I think that was, you know, that was going to be a challenge from the beginning. We did a lot of things to try to drive turnout and I think some of them successfully, but I think we also knew that 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 was going to be hard for a lot of our folks, not just in downtown Toronto, but we've heard some really um, disturbing stories from Indigenous communities, which didn't even have polls on election day. And, and that, I think, is something we're going to have to investigate and, and work on as we move forward. Does the NDP have, as you know, Brayden kind of describes this army of volunteers, does it have that same resource base that the Liberals seem to be able to draw on in those key moments? Um, I, you know, I feel pretty good about the folks that we engaged in this campaign, the people that we have on the ground, the people that we have in digital spaces doing that work. I think there's more work to do there, and I think there's also work to do in focusing those 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 people. You know, we in coming into this campaign, one of the things I wanted to do is stop the trend, which 2011 has seen us lose seats every campaign, and we did that this time. I would have liked to have succeeded even greater, but but we did that, and that is because we had a lot more people engaged both on the ground, but also in digital spaces, talking to their friends and relatives about voting for Jimmy. And, and I think there's just more to build on there. Okay, I'm gonna rewind now to mid-August when it was still sunny and we still had tans and you know there was a, a spring in all our steps before winter. And a turn to Braden now, because I think there were, each campaign had something that the Ottawa bubble or the pundits in Ottawa were kind of scratching their heads over. And I'll start with the Liberals, but I'll go around and then hopefully we can all weigh in on this. And for Brayden, I think it was this question of, of the why the election was called, but also the appearance that despite calling the election and telegraphing the election was coming for so long, the Liberals didn't seem quite ready for the start line. And what I mean by that is that, for example, Radio Canada reported that the Prime Minister was still calling around looking for the big idea in the first week of the campaign. And we didn't see the, the sort of policy issue that matched the rhetoric from the Prime Minister when he went to the Governor General's house. So what happened there? Do you agree with some of the commentary that uh, you weren't quite ready or it wasn't as finessed? Or how do you see it? Yeah, I think that there were in the first seven to 10 days of the campaign, actually a series of announcements by the Liberal campaign that uh, while there was a lot of media discussion about the timing of the election, and of course there were the events taking place uh, out of Afghanistan, but important ground that was being uh, set there on issues like the pandemic response, a plan to finish the fight, 
against COVID-19, an announcement, for instance, that mattered a lot to people in British Columbia, uh, where I originally hail from, about responding to extreme weather events like the fires uh, and heat events, extreme heat events that have been seen throughout the summer. These were, you know, important issues that, as David laid out, you know, whether it was on the pandemic or on climate, uh, and they were put out by the prime minister in the first seven to days, seven to ten days of the campaign. So I do think, uh, you know, he and the campaign writ large opened with important pieces there that uh, were important to the closing days as well. Of course, it was, you know, a different dynamic this time that the Conservatives and NDP did put uh, their closer two platforms. Uh, out pretty quickly, um, you know, in the first handful of days of the campaign, or just before it, I believe, in the NDP's case. Um, so that does establish, I think, a difference in terms of how a lot of the coverage that takes place when ours was still as it had been in 2019, right before uh, the debates uh, began. But important groundwork there that was laid in the plans question in that first week. But that's also when you saw saw your lead disappear, right? That's when you saw the majority, at least in the national polls disappear. So so did something go wrong in those weeks or did it go as planned? I, I think, you know, if you had asked many liberals, I think many of the other parties uh, representatives on this panel today, if some of the numbers that were being seen in public opinion polling in July were an honest, uh, accurate reflection of what you might expect, you know, there were some, uh, you know, polls, I think, that had the conservatives at 24 or 25%. I don't think anyone that had been involved in, in general election campaigns had quite believed that that was real. And then, of course, when the prime minister has been out every day working on you know, the pandemic, and you see his announcements and that dominates the news coverage, it's going to make a difference when suddenly there's three or four other leaders that are being covered on, on an equal basis, uh, you know, their own campaign buses and planes, their own announcements every single day. Um, so to some extent, that's not unexpected, I, I don't think. And I do, as I mentioned, uh, think that the PM laid some very important policy ground in that week that was very important to people's decisions in the final few days. Dan, how did the Conservative campaign, what was the perspective from the Conservative campaign in that first week on the Liberal campaign? Uh, we're honestly a little surprised that Liberals seemed to come out of the gate uh, a little more s slowly than we would have expected. We kept saying, you know what, this is an experienced campaign team. We know that they're going to kind of catch up, but we were a little surprised, but we mostly just focused on our plan. You know, that was, we had a plan, which was a, a plan to release the plan, which I'm <laughs> sure you saw once or twice during the campaign to get never, that out never and saw talk it. about it. <laughs> um, and, you know, initially when we got into the election, the issues that mattered to people were who has a plan to kind of rebuild Canada, rebuild our economy, get people back to work, and who can tackle the cost of living. And what we tried to do is just every day relentlessly talk about those issues uh, and as long as those issues continue to be top of mind, which they did for the first three weeks, every day we were seeing results uh, and moving the numbers in our direction. Okay, I'm quickly running out of time. So Jennifer, I'll just get you really quickly on the Liberals, but then I do need to go to Dan and Jennifer on their own campaigns before we go to audience Q&As. So yeah, just briefly, Jennifer, on the Liberals. Sure. I mean, I think what was a surprise to me was how much the why did you call the election stuck around? I think the common wisdom was that would fade and it really never did. And I think, you know, even we underestimated how angry and annoyed people were about that and how opportunistic it looked, which just kind of, I think, reinforced some of the, the doubts people already had about the prime minister. 
Okay. And before we go to my question for the conservatives, I'll just remind the audience that there are there is a question and answer time that you can add in your questions to the conversation. And that dialogue box should just be below where the video is playing. So if you do have a question for any of the panelists, please do enter it now and we'll get to that soon. In the meantime, my question for Dan is, you know, one of the stories or one of the messages from the conservatives before the campaign was to explain Aaron O'Toole's apparent unpopularity or the low polling for the conservatives is the fact that he was a pandemic leader. He was elected to the top of the party during the pandemic, and he hadn't had a chance to really introduce himself to Canadians in a meaningful way. But then when the campaign finally started, we saw him spend a lot of time in Ottawa, much more than I think we've generally seen from any campaign that we've run or that I've seen in Canada. And I'm wondering what the gain was or, or, or was it a misplay to have him so often in Ottawa in that studio doing virtual events rather than having that time to be across the country and meeting people? Yeah, the way we looked at that is most of the time uh, when you have campaign events, when a leader is interacting with people, they are frankly almost exclusively your partisans. You know, when you see the leader kind of campaigning at a campaign office, shaking hands or speaking at a rally, most of those people are already supporters or people leaning their way. Uh, and so what using the studio allowed us to do was two things. One, very, very clean, professional, prime ministerial looking uh, videos and, and uh, press conferences. Uh, to really have people who had not really seen Aaron before, because, you know, as we've seen, we've had the prime minister on our screens every day, but really not the typical sort of politics you'd have. So to introduce him to Canadians, to show him as somebody who they can picture lead in the country, and I think we succeeded in that. And then the second piece was doing a lot of telephone and video town halls, where we would reach thousands of people and have them get to hear from him, get to see him, get to ask him questions, where we were calling out to thousands, tens of thousands of people and reaching a lot more actual undecided and non, not partisans than you would through traditional events. And that's what did we it pay off? Do, do we know? Does the party know if it we, paid off? We don't know how to present no yet. We're doing a huge amount of research now and analyzing and crunching some of those numbers. We want to know that because that will, will impact how much of this we do next time. Um, but we do know that we talk to a lot more sort of non-partisans uh, and non-supporters than you, we would have in a traditional campaign. Jennifer, was there anything that the NDP saw from that that you saw working or not working or did it not have an effect for you guys? I mean, I can appreciate from a campaign director's point of view the amount of control you get to exercise when everything's in a studio in Ottawa and you don't have to worry about anybody being late for an event or anything going sideways. I don't think it's an approach that ever would have worked for us. I mean, I think Jagmeet really thrives with people and gets energy and and I think that was the right call for us to make but I think it was an interesting campaign innovation to do so much I think probably forced by the pandemic to do so much from a studio location and and I I, I don't know if it will stick around or not it may but it, I don't think it would have worked for us I can appreciate though how you know when so much is outside of your control locking things down in the Weston in Ottawa uh, it takes a lot of those variables out of the window for you as a campaign director. Right, and did it make it easier for the Liberals to contrast with Aaron O'Toole? I, I think it did, you know, and um, I would echo, you know, in a, in a different way, but partly what Jennifer said about Mr. Singh, that you know, the Prime Minister uh, has, I think, throughout his time in public life shown that, you know, he is at his best when he's with people. 
And you know, so much of the pandemic that wasn't possible for any of us. And we went virtual in so many different ways because of that, not because anyone I think wanted to be in front of uh, computer screens as much as we all end up being, but because it was a way of staying connected in between. And I think the Liberal Party did great work on things like the national convention where you do plant in a studio in one uh, set of time. But when the prime minister could get out uh, to people and do so in a safe way, I think that that is an entirely uh, different level for him that he's then able to uh, really, um, I think, speak to people in a compelling way. I think of events like the uh, drive-in rally in Oakville uh, that I think really projected the energy and uh, a strong get out the vote message uh, from him with, I guess, about eight days to go at that point. And those kind of events can help drive things home. And we've certainly seen that there's a big impact to where the prime minister goes uh, in the sort of tales that um, he can bring with them to helping get candidates across the line. Okay, and Jennifer, this is my last question before we go to the q and I, I wanna know what the NDP got from putting uh, their leader on TikTok. Jagmeet Singh had a TikTok. The other parties didn't even seem to think it was worth being on TikTok. There was a lot of discussion during the campaign about, for example, that shower video that Mr. Singh did near the end of the campaign and whether that you know, showed a lack of seriousness from a, a prospective prime ministerial candidate. And then also, of course, things like his, his participation in video games. What was the benefit for the party of doing those things? Well, I think the benefit for us is reaching people where they are. I mean, and, and in a pandemic, people are gathering in different places. So in other times and other campaigns in this campaign, we saw leaders go and hang out at pubs and pull pints for people, kind of a lighthearted approach, but a way to connect. TikTok, video games are another way to connect. And I'll just say about TikTok, you know, one TikTok video that, that Jagmeet has put out has 5 million views, plus nothing to produce, <laughs> took very little time to do. And 5 million, 95% of those in, Can in Canada have watched it. And we have heard in focus groups, people that have seen him on TikTok, and that's how they know him. I have in my own family, many people who connect to him through TikTok, and that's how they know him. And that's some of the reasons they are voting for him. So I don't underestimate the power of that of that medium. I think you know the next phase for us is to is to continue to figure out ways to take that engagement and harness it and and turn it into votes. But I would submit that if I, any of the other leaders could get that kind of engagement on TikTok, they'd be on TikTok. <laughs> Okay, so I'll just really quickly from Dan and Brayden get a yes or no, will your leaders be on TikTok in the next campaign and then we'll bring in David. Like I know video is gonna be a really important part of the next campaign as it was this time and it'll be even more important next time. I don't know about TikTok specifically, can't comment on that, but uh, definitely, definitely gonna be doing, continue to do more video. Brayden? Video is king. Uh, I would just say, you know, also Facebook, Instagram, uh, all, there's all sorts of other platforms where the prime minister has uh, millions of, of followers and a really strong community, people who've been following along on those platforms for a long time and engaging with him. It's part of what I mentioned about that drive to open up the party uh, and how we've been able to build from those communities into real action in real life, as is said online, uh, to get people knocking on doors. So absolutely uh, important to keep building on those social communities, but you have to work with all platforms, um, you know, not only one of them. Okay, so I want to bring in David Coletto back to the conversation for the audience question and answer part. 
and I'll ask everybody to make sure their mics are unmuted. And we'll just try and go sort of a really sort of hot takes quick around so we can get to as many questions as possible in the very short time that we have. The first is on the protest, which I think is a really good thing to raise because they dominated especially national media attention for a lot of the campaign. And so, Brayden, the question I guess I'll put first to you and then I'll get the others to weigh in is, were you expecting the protests? And did the, did the campaign try and capitalize on them or did it change how you were campaigning? I, I don't think uh, protests of that, um, you know, persistence um, and at times size during a pandemic were, were considered or expected as much. I don't think, you know, it would be correct at all to say capitalized on it. I think people who have known, you know, the prime minister for a long time or who know people on that bus or know young people, kids, families who are going to, you know, a political event, you want to be able to see them doing that safely and without feeling like uh, their health is being put in danger or, um, or other forms of danger. So, uh, you know, I think that was a concern. You think of, of events like Bolton when, uh, you know, a political event uh, that in a democracy should not be impeded from taking place was entirely blocked. That's that's a, a challenge for sure. But I think the prime minister addressed that uh, that evening in a very important way, in a very real way that, um, you know, addressed the frustrations that people had, but also was very clear about our commitment around fighting and finishing uh, this pandemic. Jennifer, is that how you saw it? Um, you know, we also had protests and protesters at many of the events. It's not, frankly, a new thing for Jigmeet. He has faced, um, you know, some pretty vile hatred through most of his career and most of his life. I think, you know, we took more of an approach to try to de-escalate those situations when they happen. Jigmeet was, you know, at the poutine truck in Montreal and had somebody right up in his face. Uh, and his approach was to try to de-escalate that. So I think we took a slightly different approach to those kinds of protests. Um, and, you know, it's something you have to plan for, frankly, in a, in a leader's tour these days. I, I, I'm not sure that there was any greater or, you know, stronger than I've seen in the past, but it is something that we plan for. Okay, and, and Dan, I was with the Liberals the first week, with the Conservatives the second week, you guys seem to run much more of a bubble campaign. Was that to avoid the protests or, or what factor did that have with you? Yeah, I mean, we as conservatives are very used to having protests, and it's sort of impacted, I think, a lot of how many of our people plan events is is out of a fear of protests and the knowledge that, uh, you know, if we if we do have events disrupted by protests, it tends to be reported as, as quite negative for us. Uh, I think in this campaign, if anything, the, the protests probably did help uh, the, the liberal campaign and that it allowed the prime minister to position his sort of campaign as, you know, him versus these extreme protesters and sort of try to position that as the choice. Um, and I think that I think that was helpful to them. But, uh, you know, we ran a campaign where we tried to get out there, but also sort of be careful that, uh, you know, we 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 don't have events disrupted. And David, when you're looking at sort of the trajectory of the polls, did you see the protests move the needle in any way? I don't think in terms of like people's choice, but uh, I think what it did is, I think Dan said it, it sort of, it, it raised the stakes of the election a little bit uh, for particularly sort of liberal oriented voters who maybe weren't sure why we were in the midst of this campaign and, and, and maybe made us, you know, a starker choice, not between the, the, you know, the main parties, but just simply on, on the issues that, you know, got people so riled up that they were willing to sort of 
follow along uh, the, the prime minister's campaign. So I don't think it changed the outcome, but it probably gave the, the liberal campaign a little bit of fuel to, to engage their, their own supporters. Okay, I'm going to go to Jennifer next for this question, because I think it's something that some people in Ottawa are also wondering about. The question is, why is O'Toole on the hot seat, but Jagmeet Singh is not or seems to be getting a pass? I think this person maybe means in terms of leadership, given that neither leader was able to significantly grow their footprint in Parliament. Can you talk to me a bit about, about the whether you think Mr. Singh will face a leadership challenge or what the culture is around the NDP that doesn't have seem to have the knives out as quickly as they have been on Mr. O'Toole? Well, I think New Democrats, by and large, are proud of the campaign that we ran, and that's been the overwhelming feedback that we've received. We've all been on the phones with candidates who were successful and not successful and other activists, and while there's disappointment about the result, people are proud of Jagmeen and they're proud of the campaign that we ran. We also tend to with the glaring exception of one, give our leaders a lot more time to, to build towards a, a win. You know, people often think of Jack and the breakthrough in 2011. They forget that there was 10 years before that uh, of not breakthroughs and a lot of building and a lot of learning. And so I think, you know, New Democrats, we just know uh, that giving leaders some time to build and grow and do that work um, is better in the long run for success than dumping a leader every time things go awry. And Dan, are, are, you, are you trying to bring that culture to the Conservatives? I, I, I know that the Conservatives have uh, their first caucus meeting tomorrow, which I think might be tense at times. So, so maybe shed a bit of light for us on the efforts being made by Mr. O'Toole's team to ensure that he does get that second chance. Yeah, look, I, I understand, you know, many, conservative, con many conservatives are concerned, and rightfully so, about the direction of the country under Mr. Trudeau and feel that there is a, you know, a very uh, urgent need for change uh, in this country. Uh, conservatives also understand that in the past it has taken us uh, time to do that. It took, you know, it took uh, Mr. Harper, for example, two elections to earn the trust of Canadians. Uh, and I think that the people I talk to, most of them understand that, you know, we made progress in this election in terms of earning that trust, but there, there is more to do, and that you are not going to achieve that if you keep changing leaders every election. And so I think that you know the message that the campaign team, that the leader uh, has been expressing to conservatives is, you know, we recognize we didn't do everything right. We recognize we could have done more, uh, but uh, we introduced the leader to Canadians. He did well. He, he showed he's a good campaigner. Uh, and uh, we are very well positioned for next time, and and the response we're getting to that is a very good one. David, I'm going to put the next question to you, and I'm wondering, um, you know, foreign policy rarely gets a lot of play in Canadian elections, but Afghanistan certainly got a lot of airtime in the first few weeks of the campaign. Did it have an impact, do you think, on the actual campaign? I think it, it added to the the mood you know, when the election was was called and added to the sense that, you know, is this the right time to add an, to have an election? I think the timing of that just just made people even more uh, skeptical of, of whether we should be in the middle of a campaign. But I don't think it ended up having any impact on people's choice. Like the, the data point I have is when we ask people, you know, how important are different issues, only 4% uh, put it in their top two or three 
um, of, of issues that, that actually drove their vote through the campaign. So I don't think Afghanistan nor any real fault, you know, foreign policy issue had had much play. China, to some extent, I think in in some ridings, it, it, it appears that it could have been the reason why, you know, the Conservatives lost uh, a mm-hmm. handful of seats with large Chinese Canadian uh, populations. But I think that was, uh, you know, very isolated and, and as a whole, nah, foreign issues really didn't play a, a role. Okay, uh, we are already over time, so I'm going to have to wrap it there. Thank you all so much. I'm now going to turn it back to Kelly Jackson. Kelly. Thank you. Thank you to David, Marika, Dan, Jennifer, and Braden. That was so great, and I could tell that we could have gone on for another hour there with all the questions coming in. Um, I'd like to introduce Tenio Evangelisa, Vice President, Infrastructure Government Relations at OMERS to deliver today's appreciation remarks. Tenio? Thanks, uh, thanks Kelly, and thanks to the Empire Club for putting on another post-election event. I think we all really enjoy these, and I know us at OMERS, uh, we love our partnership with uh, the Empire Club, and we look forward to uh, many more. Uh, hopefully not to not a post-federal election one anytime soon, but uh, maybe a provincial one. Uh, I just want to thank all our our, our guests, uh, starting with uh, David Coletto. Great presentation, David, as always. Some really interesting insights into uh, the numbers and how they moved, how they didn't move. Uh, so really appreciate your time. Marika, great job as always as a moderator. Maybe they should get you to do the next debate. Maybe it'll, it'll run more smoothly. But uh, you did a great job. Thank you. And to Jennifer, Dan, and Braden, thanks for your time. Uh, and thanks for the insights into the campaigns. I know it's not it's not always easy especially for if you're not the winner, to come and talk about uh, what went wrong, what went right. But uh, we really appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing you all soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Tenio. And thanks again to all of our panelists and everybody who joined us today or will be participating and tuning in at a later date. Our next event is gonna take place on October 14th at noon Eastern time. It's going to be a fall market update with the Honorable Kinga Surma, Ontario's Minister of Infrastructure. And then on October 18th, also at noon, Peter Mansbridge will be joining us to moderate a panel discussion on the affordability of aging at home. More details on these events and complimentary registration is available at the EmpireClubOfCanada.com. This meeting is now adjourned. Have a great evening, stay safe, and take care.